Hello, you're listening to Developer Voices, and today we're going to put another new programming language under our spotlight. This time it's the turn of Gren. That's G-R-E-N, Gren. It's a language that's trying to take the biggest, most important ideas from functional programming and then make them as accessible as possible. But which ideas do you take? And what does it mean to try and make them accessible to more developers? And how do you do that? Joining me to discuss all of that is the creator of Gren, Robin Hegland Hansen. He started the project a few years back for that most noble of reasons. He really, really wanted it to exist. So he started with a fork of Elm, if you've heard of that front-end language, and he set about reshaping it in a few different ways and expanding its scope so it works on the back end as well as the front end. We talk about all the directions he's trying to take it, where he's looking to be in the future of Gren, and how he's trying to build up a sustainable community around it so that it doesn't just rely on him being the benevolent dictator for life. I really hope he succeeds. It's certainly an interesting journey to be on. So let's join him and hear all about it. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices. And today's voice is Robin Hegland Hansen. I'm joined today by Robin Hegland Hansen. Robin. How are you? Hello, thanks. Uh, I'm fine. And you? Good. Yeah, I'm good. The sun is shining for once in England today, so I'm happy. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> we're having a extremely hot summer, uh, but I'm recording this from the basement, so I'm like I'm able to focus and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't and, uh, cook in there and function. Yeah, it's um, yeah. Function is the word of the day. Look at that for a segue, because you. <laughs> <laughs> Since we last met, you've been creating a functional programming language, right? That's right. Yeah, um, it's called the uh, Gram. Uh, so <laughs> love the pronunciation. You'll have to forgive me if I call it Gren. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. It's a uh, it's a Norwegian word. Uh, hmm. So I'm thinking that if I'm not pronouncing it correctly, then it doesn't stand a chance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, Gren is fine. You can okay. I, I do occasionally slip up as well. <laughs> but tell us about Gren. What's what's the elevator pitch? The elevator pitch. Okay, so uh, I would say that Gren. There you go. Uh, Gren <laughs> is a simple language uh, that tries to help you write maintainable, readable, and uh, well-functioning applications. Okay. Uh, and that doesn't really mean anything. So uh, <laughs> Gren is a, is a statically typed language, okay. uh, and it tries very hard to use that static typing to guide you to write robust applications. Um, uh, another way of thinking of it is that we're trying to take the really good ideas of Haskell and mm -hmm. making it simple. Uh, if if you're not one for complexity, yeah, <laughs> I think uh, a bit more approachable. I'm a huge fan of Haskell, and I think it's the way programming should go long term. But I've got to admit, it's not accessible. I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it to anyone as their first or even second programming language. <laughs> no. I tried. Uh, I, I think I it took me three tries. I think to learn Haskell until I like finally got over the. 
got over the initial complexity and the the inherent fear I got from. Uh, <laughs> I think I I think I bought this book, which was way too thick, and so every time I approached it, it was still with a. <laughs> yeah, that's a danger these days because generally you buy yeah. eBooks and you can't tell what you're letting yourself in for. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's a good point. Okay, so a more accessible thing in the spirit of Haskell. Yeah, well, I think I think if you I think if you like Haskell, I think you will look at uh, Grand and think this is this is not Haskell, uh, but it uh, but it has you know the ML syntax, uh, so it looks right. looks uh, similar from afar, uh, and it has it has tried to stay away from all the from all the uh, difficult concepts. I think it. Uh, Never once do we mention the M word, for instance. Uh, <laughs> I have so, to put a little subtitle so, on the video version of this. <laughs> so, uh, so no, it's it, it tries to do it tries to make it approachable in a way, but we're but we're also it's it's a very limited subset of Haskell. Um, okay, so if you're taking the subset, what do you think the big ideas are that you're taking? Well, for for me, the the um, I, well, it's different for a lot of people, I guess. But the most important parts of it for me is the fact that um, is the fact that uh, the type system is used to check uh, many things, which in uh, in many programs are completely unmanaged. Uh, so you will have, like for instance, uh, Grand doesn't have exceptions. That is that has to be represented as part of the type system. Uh, and so while we, while, while we do have exceptions as a concept, you can't define your own and you can't, you can certainly not throw them. You instead have to module that as part of the type system. Uh, and the byproduct of that is that the compiler will catch errors that you probably should handle. And another big thing about it is that, uh, side effects are also treated the same way. So if you want to perform a side effect, like reading from disk or um, sending something over HTTP, that has to be moduled as part of the type system. Um, so you can't accidentally mean, inherit unpredictable functions into your code yes. base, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, it, it it also gives you this sense of control that if you're going to import a third-party package, uh, if it if it hasn't specified a side effect in its type system, that you, then you know that whatever it does, it will remain local to this program. Um, That's one of those things. I mean, we often talk about it in terms of correctness, but yep. I'm surprised it doesn't get more headway in security. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that we're trying to push a little bit in Grem, um, especially on the backend side. Um, so we have this concept of um, applications and packages, and those are two different things. And in packages, in order to perform certain things like reading from disk, reading a file, for instance, or performing a network request, you first have to obtain a, a value that represents a permission to do such an action. Okay. But those permissions are only handed to applications. So as a package author, there is no way for you to simply perform or even um, there is no way for you to perform a file IO 
unless you retrieve a special value from the application. And that way, right. the application author uh, has full control over what parts of the system can perform which side effects. So I can no longer write a library that claims to left pad strings, but also runs a crypto mining bot at the same time. Yes. Yes. Right. Unfortunately, Chris, you lose that ability. <laughs> Damn, that was going to be my to riches. <laughs> or like, you can do that. But again, it, it will be very apparent in the type system that you gain that ability. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and I, you know, the hope is that like the trade-off we're making here is that the application author has to do an extra bit of bookkeeping. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, it becomes very apparent what code that you're calling can do. And so this is different from, uh, it's different from Haskell, uh, and it's different from uh, Elm, which uh, Grian shares a lot of uh, uh, history with, mm. uh, wherein, um, whereby those languages expose this uh, IO type. In Elm, it's called task. Um, and if you can see a task in the type types of a function, then you know that this can perform one or really many kinds of side effects if it wants to. Yeah. And side effects can be anything. Uh, but then again, we're trying to kind of like limit the powers of the, the IO. So you're going more granular the on the, yeah. Because yes. Haskell always had that, I think, because they invented it before they realized how powerful it was. And Elm yeah. had it as a kind of way of simplifying this all down. But you're saying exactly. it's worth the yeah. complexity to break it into different kinds of side effects. I think so. Uh, especially <laughs> especially for the sort of... This is my hypothesis. Uh, uh, it's still very early uh, for Graham. We, we are releasing 03 in about a week. So I've been doing this for about a year and a half. So it's relatively new, right? Okay. Um, but my yeah, that's my working hypothesis that it'll be worth that that extra bookkeeping will be worth it if you want that level of control. Tell me a bit about how you got started on this, because it seems I've I've checked it out briefly and I've played around with some of the demos. It seems you share more than just inspiration with Elm. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you learn that? No, it's, uh, I, it's, it's, uh, it's no secret, really, that uh, Grant started his life as a fork of Elm. Okay. Uh, but I, I, I consider that mostly to be an implementation detail because it's not a goal of the Grant project to remain compatible in any way, shape, or form with, with Elm. And for the first release, one of the first things we, we did was like, which parts of Elm syntax don't we like for some reason? And then, you know, remove or add to that. Um, so that for the first, already from the first release, we were in, incompatible with Elm. Right. Deliberately, you're um, cutting ties and not trying to. Yes, deliberately. Yeah. And uh, so, so you know, and, and I... It's important to note here that, you know, before I started working on Gren, I've, I've contributed to Elm, the, the standard library, and uh, written some packages of my own. I worked professionally professionally in uh, Elm, and I like both the language, uh, uh, Evan, who created the language, and the community a lot, and I have a deep respect for them. And so... Mm -hmm. uh, 
when I decided to create Gren, it was very important for me to not um, that Gren wouldn't become something that stole attention from the Elm community in any way. So it has been a, an explicit design goal from the beginning to not be compatible with Elm, to not make it easy to just take an Elm package and convert it to Gren. Okay, but why? What wasn't, because I know you were hugely into Elm. What was Elm yeah. not doing for you? So I, it's not like, so if I were to create, if I were deciding that, you know, I'm going to create a single page application for the browser, uh, I would still reach for Elm. Uh, I think Elm really is. If if that's the thing you're going to create, I don't think you will find any better experience out there than Elm. Now, you can do the same things in Gren because we are a fork, right, at the moment. Yeah. But Elm really, really, uh, yeah, I, Elm is the nicest thing to use when writing those kinds of applications. You put that ahead of... Oh, sorry. But I mean, if you were talking to a general audience, you'd, you would recommend that ahead of, say, TypeScript and React? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Good. We've got the controversial <laughs> quote in there. <laughs> yeah. So, like, but, uh, so, so I think that the, the main thing missing for me yeah. is that you can't really make other things in, uh, in Elm. Elm is very suited for one thing. And if you want to do something else, you're you're fighting this uphill battle. Yeah, it's now, very much focused I have on used... single-page web apps. It's not a general-purpose yeah, programming language. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so I have used it for it. Like I have written a compiler for a toy language in Elm. But you are, you know, you are fighting this uphill battle constantly, and it's worth it because you really love the language and the semantics. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's uh, so so really the, the trigger for me was I want I want Elm. I want the security it provides. I want the convenience. I want the um, the um, I, I, I want Elm. <laughs> I, I really <laughs> like it. I want the semantics it has. Um, but I, I want it for backend applications because at some point, I started doing backend development, and mm. I feel that you know, backend development could really use all the features that Elm has, or all the benefits it has. But there really isn't a good contender there, I think. Yeah. So you weren't tempted to go with something like um, Haskell or PureScript. I wasn't. It's but it's funny. Uh, that's the question I get the most. <laughs> like why? <laughs> Why create? Why not use PureScript or why not use Haskell? Yeah, and um, I think we we touched a little bit on it. Like Haskell is um, partly because it it uh, it was the first to do a lot of these things. Partly because it's also focused on being a research language. Haskell has a lot of complexity um, and a lot of terms and concepts that are not inherently approachable they're not intuitive i guess and there's nothing inherently wrong with that like i enjoy programming languages i can spend a summer learning a new programming language because i like the challenge and i like you know yeah but most of the people that i work with don't <laughs> yeah. most of the people that i work with uh are treating programming as a job and not a passion um yeah 
and uh, and you know they've learned one programming language why should they learn another uh and then i can say it has all these benefits but if they take one look at like the the best teaching book for haskell and they <laughs> run for the hills i i essentially i i won't be able to work on it professionally at least not in the sort of projects that i work on right now so the problem with haskell and purescript is is their complexity and that is a benefit for some like you can you can be very flexible in haskell you can model things in a lot of different ways and that's very cool if you're into that mm. um, but if all you want to do is get something done in the safest and best way as possible the complexity of purescript and haskell kind of get in the way i think i think that's fair and uh, i think uh, the thing about elm is it did such a great job of being accessible and predictable and reliable that when people were getting started programming, sometimes I would say, well, you know, if you want a job, get JavaScript or Python. But if you want to learn how to actually program without banging your head against the table, Elm is so friendly. It's going to help you. Do you think you've managed to capture that accessible friendliness in Gren? That's a tough, that's, that's a tough (laughs) benchmark. Uh, You know, it's, uh, it's it's definitely a design goal to keep um, um, it's a it's definitely a design goal to keep um, to keep that friendliness to keep those um, those benefits that make the language so approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, like I've also gotten a lot of respect for the amount of work that takes. Like everything, and you need to keep this in the back of your head. Like I want this thing because that would make this backend thing easier to do. Mm. Uh, and then you can implement that, but actually making that easy to understand, intuitive and have like error messages to say, oh, I think you did this because of your experience with JavaScript, but in Grand, you should do this. Like those kinds of error messages yeah. are an incredible amount of work. Um, so am I succeeding in this? I don't know, but I but I hope to continue that um, continue in those design footsteps to keep it approachable and and uh yeah do you have any idea of how much how your workload breaks down with this how much are you understanding the code base you've originally forked versus developing new features versus making them usable user-friendly features uh well, that's difficult to it's difficult to answer. So the uh, Gran wasn't this. It wasn't this. Uh, an apple fell from a tree, and I had a sudden realization that I was going to make a new <laughs> programming language. Uh, a lot of these ideas and thoughts have have happened over a very long period of time. Mm. Um, so, as you said, I was very into Elm, and I've been very into Elm for my God, as then six or seven years, I think. Mm. And I've been working with it full time in, in certain respects. And so a lot of the things that I know I want in Gren are things that I've thought about for the last several years. Um, yeah. Uh, and so now there is this, I think now what I'm doing is I have this idea. I know roughly how it should work. And I know that this is an idea is better than other ideas for certain rings. So I think a lot of the time, uh, a lot of the time that goes into Grand right now is figuring out the precise implementation details and actually talking with other people and getting their first impressions and, and taking that into account when, when doing things. Um, 
but this is also like a hobby project. So I spend maybe, I, I, I spend anywhere from one hour to five hours a week actually implementing things. And then the rest of the time I'm uh, spending 30 minutes or one hour before I fall asleep and like churning through like how should it actually work and uh, what are the challenges here. Yeah, what they call in the closure world hammock time. Hammock time, yes. Yeah, where you're just <laughs> kicking back and thinking. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of that and probably a lot more than actual implementation, I, mm. would, uh, I would assume, yeah. One thing we haven't said here, so the... Um that people won't know elm is, was it purely like a front end compiles down to javascript language i'm assuming that's still the case for gren that you're running on the browser and running on node is it going to stay like that for the foreseeable um maybe uh currently like so we've inherited the javascript um code generation from the elm compiler mm. um and it works and it's not the most important thing to tweak right now. Also, the, the the Elm compiler is written with JavaScript as an explicit target in mind. So there's a lot of things the Elm compiler simply doesn't do because it doesn't really have to uh, when targeting JavaScript. So to target something other than JavaScript would be uh, a huge amount of work um, yeah. because the, the compiler simply isn't written uh, written with that in mind. Yeah, and uh, so so I've been I've been focusing on trying to to add the what I like to think of the missing features to the language, mm -hmm. and once that is done, I'm gonna if, take some hammock time and evaluate should this target WebAssembly or uh, or something else. Yeah, that'd be an obvious uh, next but, place to go, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what what is your feature list? My feature list. So <laughs> so. Um, so in Gren 02, which came out in January, I believe we supported compiling, uh, to different platforms. So now you can target the browser platform, uh, which essentially just provides you APIs that allow you to write browser single page applications, essentially, right. uh, what Elm already provides. And, uh, uh but you can also say, I'm going to target node. In which case you get some node-specific APIs, and you can also say I, I'm going to target neither of those platforms. In which case you're limited to this cross-platform API that works in both worlds. Oh, okay. Um, so that's what you can do now. So you can write node applications or browser applications, or you can write packages that can be pulled into both types of projects. Uh, and then. What I've been focusing on now for the last six months is uh, testing and debugging. Um, so for a couple of months ago, I released uh, uh, the Gren test framework. Uh, so you now you can now pull in local, meaning on disk projects uh, that you can test before you do a release, for instance. And um, when the next release comes out, uh, Gren will um will create source maps okay. uh, which is a way of teaching the browser or node.js how the generated javascript output relates to the original source files so in the debugger in the chrome dev tools or whatnot you can actually debug gren source code instead of the generated javascript yeah yeah it throws a javascript <laughs> error but it points you to where your code actually has some meaning exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. um <clears throat> 
not to mention you can actually step through uh, grand code line by line. That really helps. Oh, yeah. um, so that's like the immediate thing that I'm working on. And the next thing is working on what we're calling parametric modules or what is known in OCaml as functors. Um, okay. So it's a way of saying that I have a module and this module requires, requires some abstract module as input and then it will give you a concrete implementation of that module in return. It's... Um, you can make, you so make a concrete example. Yes. Okay. So, so um, for instance, I can create a dictionary module for a dictionary type. Mm -hmm. And I can say that in order to actually realize this module, in order to import this module, you need to give this module a another module as input. So mm -hmm. It's kind of like a higher order module thing going on. Okay. And that module has to have a type alias and a compare function, for instance. And then using that, the compiler can kind of generate a dict implementation for you that is specialized for strings. Okay. Or integers or whatever type you want to have. How is that going to differ from like just having type variables on, on the regular module? Yeah, so, um, well, I mean, um, the normal way to solve things like this in other languages would be interfaces or type classes or protocols or whatnot. Right? Yeah. The difference here is that instead of doing runtime polymorphism, we're essentially, um, we're essentially generating a new module for you ahead of time. Ah. Uh. So, yeah, so we're essentially creating you a specialized dict module for every type you want to use it with instead of creating this runtime dictionary of types and matching implementations. So is that more efficient when it finally gets to runtime? It can be. Um, uh, because uh, the from a performance standpoint, the benefit here is that the compiler will at any one time know exactly what functions and types are involved. So the compiler can optimize around that. Whether we actually make use of that in the code generation depends because we, since we're ta also targeting browsers, I have to consider like code size as well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But you can do that. Like the compiler can act, in fact know exactly what types are involved instead of knowing that there is some dynamic thing here that I will figure out at the runtime. Yeah, because the, the generated types uh, JavaScript for a lot of these things is at runtime looking up in a hidden parameter dictionary itself which particular implementation it should be using for this yep. single function call. And that always feels kind of inefficient. <laughs> yeah. So, well, of course, the JavaScript runtime is specialized in this, so it, it's relatively fast. But, yeah. you know, th so that is like from a, from a code generation standpoint, that's the benefit you get. Like, you know exactly what function you're going to call um, so you can optimize around that from a user standpoint um, I think the main benefit is that it's it's simpler because you as a user you also know the types involved right because you have to say that this is a string dictionary 
And so you also know exactly what types are involved and the error messages you get can potentially be a lot more concrete than saying, you're supposed to send in a comparable, but you've sent in not comparable. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, so, so we, can, we can be a lot more concrete in the feedback we give to the user uh, in this. Yeah. Yeah, in Haskell world, um, it's great that you can be super abstract, but sometimes your error messages are super abstract. Yeah, uh, and that's uh, again, that's in trying to keep with the Elm tradition of being very approachable, and and uh, uh, and I think that this will help us do that. Uh, but another benefit that I think some people probably see as a downside is that it's very hard to be super abstract with this. And I think that because you have to, as part of importing the module, you have to specify the exact type you're going to use. And if you want like three dictionaries over three different types, you have to import the module three times. Okay. Right? So there's, there is some boilerplate involved. And if you are going to have uh, a parametric module that takes in a parametric module that takes in like that sort of hierarchy yeah. will be very difficult to module. And that lack of flexibility in certain ways is, I think, a feature uh, because it, it, like some people will see that lack of flexibility and think, ah, oh, this language is limiting. I can't do exactly what I want. But the effect of that is that you don't go too crazy on the abstractions. Yeah. yeah. And so I think the net result is like that, that little pushback will keep you dealing with concrete things and that overall is easier i think that comes back then to who is your target audience because it sounds like you're not trying to capture haskell people you've said you're no. not trying to capture the elm market are you trying to capture the typescript people <laughs> i no, i think there is this um there has been this thing said about uh, I, I don't know how to say it. There, like, I, I get this impression that a lot of people think that Haskell is a, um, like a stepping stone to learn Haskell. Uh, Elm. Elm is yeah, a stepping yeah. stone to learn Haskell because, because Elm is so simple that like, you can learn Elm very easily. And once you learn Elm, you will start to notice all uh, that, that it's so simple that you can't do like <laughs> these crazy abstractions. And that's when you will take the next step and go to Haskell, right? Yeah. And Elm is certainly simple to learn, but I, I also feel like the beauty of Elm is that things never get too crazy. That when you pull in the third-party library, you don't have to wrap your hand around uh, why use this abstraction, why use this thing. And I think like for a lot of people who don't value... I think sometimes you just want to get things done. And so <laughs> having a simple world is just really good for that. Yeah. Yeah, I can I think buy that's that. How I think I'm just going to stop there because it, it, it quickly becomes like, oh, these complexity-loving people. I don't, like, I, <laughs> I don't have anything against that. But I, personally, I just enjoy simple languages that don't go too crazy on things. There is a place for that like i enjoy i can enjoy dealing with language that has a lot of like i can enjoy working in Haskell, but not for work for work i just want to get things done 
yeah. without too much discussion and without like too much experimentation. There's I love puzzles. I love there's puzzles. also no shame in shipping. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's uh, actually when I'm thinking, uh, uh, actually now that I have time to think about it some more, there's another benefit to the parametric module approach. And that is that um, there is some more flexibility in how to implement certain interfaces. So in, in, in Haskell, if you want to implement, again, we're going back to a dictionary example. I, mm. I got, I'm going to have a dictionary. That dictionary is going to be sorted over some key. Yeah. And if you are writing something where it's a benefit to know the sort order, uh, and make use of that, then that can be pretty good. But sometimes maybe you want strings to be sorted in the reverse order, for some example. Yeah. Um, and if you want that, then you would kind of like have to create a wrapper type in Haskell, and then you would have to implement a new comparison operator on that wrapped type. Yeah. Uh, and you have to do that because you can't have two implementations of the same type class, right? You can't have, uh, and it's the same in Java, it's the same in, in Go. You can't have conflicting implementations of some interface. Whereas with the parametric modules approach, you can create a new module and that module can, you know, have functions that work on strings uh, without wrapping it at all, right? You're sending, it's the module that you're sending in as the input, not a type. And so if you wanted like a dictionary that sorted strings in reverse order for some reason, you could just create a new module. That module references the normal string type and the comparison operation would just be like a reverse compare. And so you can okay. use string at keys and then you can take the strings out and use them with any other string for uh, function without unwrapping and wrapping to make that happen. And you could use both in the single top level module without them conflicting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so that is another benefit of it. Okay. If that's your feature list for um, for Gren for the near future, I get to uh, ask about my feature list because there are a couple of things yes. that have bothered me about Elm. <laughs> I'm wondering if you're going to yep. address. The first is interop with JavaScript. Every now and then, yep. you want to do something from JavaScript, and Elm was always, every new release had a new way of dealing with that. Um, yeah. Which was usually a breaking change that was undocumented because, mm -hmm. if I can say this, Evan always punted the design question of interop. Do you have an answer? <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's a tricky thing. So I, I get that you know, for certain things, you don't want to recreate the wheel, uh, reinvent the wheel uh, mm -hmm. by, like if you want to use like a 3D library, you don't want to invent like physics and, and, uh, <laughs> and 3D game creation just to be able to use some functionality in, in Elm or, or Grim, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's quite relevant. But the problem we have is that one of the, one of the biggest benefits, I think, of Elm and of Grim is that uh, there are no exceptions to the guarantees it provides. Like you, there is no mutability in Grim, none. You cannot even like there is no escape hatch from that. Mm. Uh, there is no other way. Like there are no exceptions, and there are no escape hatches for that. There is managed side effects, and there are no other way of dealing with side effects. If you simply call JavaScript from anywhere, then you can have mutation. You can have exceptions. You can't like. 
And so having, having interop, which essentially just lets you call JavaScript from anywhere, uh, breaks the guarantees of language. Yeah. And that is something I'm super careful about maintaining. Like that for me, like the, the complexity of the language is one thing, but also like the guarantees. Yeah, Being yeah. able to count on those guarantees are, if you don't have that, then you might as well, in my opinion, use PureScript, right? So the trick is having a form of interop, which allows you to do the things that would be too much of an ordeal uh, if you were to rewrite or port the library. Um, that at the same time doesn't break the guarantees. And I don't, I don't, like I've been thinking about it. I know that the current system of using ports can work in certain cases, but is very difficult in other cases. Mm. And I've been thinking a little bit on how that could possibly be improved. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's a difficult question and it's not the most important thing right now. Uh, so, 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 so I, I'll say this. I agree with you that it could be better, mm. uh, but it's also not easy. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah uh, that's fair. It's it's not it's not my near uh, it's not in the near future. I will probably look at it at some point, but not right now. Okay, okay. Let me just quickly ask you then, as an aside, what because PureScript's answer to this is you define the types of the JavaScript functions you want, and you define the side effects it has. And we will believe you, and it's up to you to get it right. What do you think of that approach? So that's, I, I believe that's how Elm worked in 018, 017. There was one release that took that away, and uh, everyone lost their minds. Uh, <laughs> Me included. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot. Like, <laughs> I get that. Um, mm. Because there were, you know, there were a lot of people who had production code that relied on that thing. We did as well, and it was non-trivial to work around it. What we discovered when we refactored a way out of that was that we did, in fact, have uh, a lot of side effects. Not a lot, but we had side effects, and we had mutations in the program that we didn't actually realize that we had. Um, yeah, and so by like by by writing ourselves out of it, we actually fixed a few bugs in the process. Hmm. Uh, I think it was a race condition or something like that. So, and I, you know, I see it. Uh, that API never went away. It was just restricted to the core packages, right? So, so as the author of Gren, I. There, I did it again, like Gren. <laughs> um, so as the author of Gren, I, I use that API constantly, and even I mess up every now and again. So I think like that's one way to go. I don't think it will be... I, I hope to find something better than that. Um, because it's it's a it's a bit too easy to introduce, and one thing is in your own applications, right? I have no problem with people breaking the world in their own application. The trick is how to limit it to applications um, rather than libraries that get published. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the the problem, like, so 
I remember another thing that was removed in Elm 018, I believe, was custom operators, uh, which I think it was 018. And I, I oh, know yeah. a lot of, I know a few people left the community because of that, because they had written packages that made a lot of use of them. And now mm. suddenly they had to rewrite everything to get it to work. Um, and I remember, I remember we discussed it because I was a member of the core team at the time. And uh, one of the reasons for removing custom operators was that there was one package that did something and it was the only package that did that thing. And it had the specific operator and it didn't have like a function implementation of it. So you had to use the operator. And I think the yeah. operator had like five, five strange characters. Like yeah. The operator was like, it was a big, entirely cryptic operator. And I think like if you read code that included that stuff, it was like, this is not what I think Elm should look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so um, it's, um, yeah, I don't, I don't mind how people write their own applications. The problem is when you have a package that implements something very important and you, you're kind of like playing by that package's rules, and so like the, the, the thing that I think would be a shame is that if I allowed some limited form of JavaScript interop and that bleeds into a package and then that package introduces mutations or side effects or anything, I would kind of feel like a big point of the Elm lang uh, Grand language was lost. Yeah. If you, yeah, if you get my meaning. So yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. that's in practice, a language is both its language and its libraries. So the guarantees yeah. that you're trying to offer have to extend to the library ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. That, that comes across to my other uh, wish list feature from Elm, which was package yeah. management was always very locked down. And if you wanted to use like a package as a corporation, if you had a package that you wanted to reuse across several projects, that was painful under Elm's package yep. manager. Are you addressing that yeah. at all? I, I have, uh, actually. So so I felt the same pain, I think. I wrote a third-party package um, tool, I guess, for Elm that was called Elm Git install, um, which allowed you to import code from private Git repositories. And it was a complete hack, but it, <laughs> it worked well enough. Uh, in... Um, in Gren, the first release had to have its own, like I couldn't rely on the Elm package manager, obviously. And so the solution I ended up with is that when you reference a package in Gren JSON, uh, it will actually it will actually turn that package reference into a GitHub URL, and it will simply call your local Git installation on that right. GitHub URL. So. The package managing in Gren is, is simply using Git. Um, and if you point that to a private GitHub repository, as long as you have access to that, that will work. Okay. And then I haven't gotten soul. syntax. Yeah, it's it does the job, at least. Um, yep. There is, uh, I haven't added syntax for referencing something other than GitHub. But there's no reason other than laziness for that. So if someone right. comes along and says, I would love to import stuff from GitLab, then I'll <laughs> let's fix that. Right. Okay. That's, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> if someone gives me a syntax and everyone agrees that yeah this would be great then that can be added very quick <laughs> you make that um, sound desperately simple everyone agreeing on syntax <laughs> yeah so so yeah so it's essentially just a git based package manager uh, uh, system and then I have like this uh, for core packages to enforce those rules we just talked about, about not using certain private APIs of the compiler. Yeah. Uh, if you try to download a core package, then it will validate the signing key of the last commit to make sure that, to make sure you're not trying to include a fork of the core library that does a lot of mutation or something like that. Right, okay. Uh, but other than that, it's just a pure Git um, based package management system. Yeah. That sounds pretty appealing to me. That would <laughs> that would have solved a few headaches in my previous yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. The, when I, you know, when I did this professionally, we, we only had like ninety percent of our dependencies were private dependencies that the corporation didn't want uh to get uh to be public so we had this problem a lot as well yeah yeah i've even for like personal projects i've had reusable libraries that just weren't in a state where i wanted to share them with the world yeah like, even though it wasn't private it was just like i don't let people into my bedroom unless i have to <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and also it's it's also when like so when i'm creating new packages for Gren, i also have them private until it's ready to yeah to show it off right and being able to actually test that without doing magic is yeah. is pretty good. Yeah. So you've hinted on this in um, your easy hand waving of syntax, but what's the development process? Is there a community around it? Is there a team? Is it just you on your own? It's mostly just me, uh, at least to work on it uh, regularly. Um, I have there is a Sulip for Gren, uh, which everyone can join. Uh, and I try my best to write down all the language changes and API change, well, not necessarily API things, but I try to write down all changes to the language as a proposal. And then I'll link it to the Sulip and then ask for feedback. Um, the Gren community isn't that big right now so mostly people just read it and gives me a, a thumbs up or something um uh and you know i since it's since we're at this early state and i'm the de facto benevolent dictator i do sometime ignore feedback but i i try very hard to share all upcoming features and syntax changes to get as much feedback as i can and take that into the development process um but when it comes, uh, but there are, people have proposed things uh, and people have implemented those changes after some feedback from me. And there are people right now working on some major APIs um, okay. that they, they mostly do on their own and then check back with me every once in a while and then we get those things merged. So one, I don't know if you I don't know if you've ever uh, been angered by this Chris but uh, in Elm there is this limitation when updating records that the record you're updating has to be like a local variable it can't be any expression I don't think I've encountered that No well no. It, 
that is a limitation. And uh, I'm not going to go through like the reason for why that is the case, but I've always, uh, well, not always, but I've, I've disagreed with that Mm. design choice in the past. So someone came into the loop and say, I want to remove this limitation. I said, fine. And he did a pull request and then he got merged in time for Gren 02. For instance. Cool. Okay. So language change, I'm open for language changes as long as they don't break with like the core principles of the language, which is simplicity and having a very strict set of guarantees. Uh, but also on the API front, there is someone right now working on both a WebSocket API and a backend HTTP server API. Oh, nice. Because that's another yeah. thing I remember Elm being a little bit all over the place with was WebSocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a shame. It exists. Because- as a language, it really suits, like the whole architecture really suits the idea of real-time streaming WebSockets. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, so, and, and that's probably also one of the bigger changes from Elm is the development model. Um, I try to be very open on suggestions and contributions from others. So, um, and and there's also very... Um, there is a six month release cadence thing going on. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, in general, op- uh, more open for contributions than, uh, than Elm is, which That's... isn't, which isn't like, I'm, I just have to say that right now. I don't necessarily disagree with the way the Elm project is run, but there are, there are trade-offs being made and I'm choosing a different path, uh, yeah. with, uh, with the positives and negatives that are involved in that. I do you know I will I I'll allow myself to be a bit controversial there. I think the thing about Elm is it had a great design consistency because most of the development was kept in the head of one person who had great design yep. chops. The downside of that was the speed of development kind of waxed and waned depending on what his life was doing. Yeah. And do yeah, you and think that, in the future that Gren won't be entirely tied to Robin Hanson. I hope so. God, I hope so. <laughs> 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 like I have, uh, so that's the strange. So I have, um, I have, uh, uh, I have a son who's turning three now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the thing that happens when you, when that, you know, and when that happens to you, which, which, which is mostly good. But what happens to you as a person is you start thinking 10, 20, 30 years down the line. And mm. I'm, I'm doing Grean right now because I need something like this to exist. And no one really stepped up to, to do that. And so I felt I had, like, if I'm not going to do it, it's, it's just not going to happen. Um, right. but, I, but I also have enough ideas and, and for other things that I hope to be able to do um, someday in the future. Like may- maybe I spend 10 years on Gren. Mm. Wow, saying that out loud. Is... <laughs> 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 but okay, let's say I spend 10 years on Gren. I hope to be able to like pass the torch to someone else. But, I, but at the very least, until Gren reaches 1.0, mm. until we have a community around it that are like, that, that, until we have like a sense of what Gideon is and isn't, then mm. I think it, it's best served by this single person uh, development model. Um, but yeah, in the future, I hope to 
to change that. I don't, I don't expect or want to be uh, in this role forever. A benevolent dictator like, until uh, you can abdicate, abdicate to a democracy. Yeah, yeah. yeah I had a, I had helpful. a, uh, I the year that I had a little bit of time in the university, and I had this, um, I had this teach, uh, professor who once said that the ideal form of government is uh, is dictatorship, and where in in place of elections you have uh, public execution. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so that like a dictatorship is, is the is the most efficient way and the most consistent way of, of uh, running a government but at some point you have to come to the conclusion that the dictator has to go <laughs> maybe we'll apply that more to software models than to running the entire society <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We could we could very quickly go into a completely different category of podcast on that one. So. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but I'm but I am like I am looking into so I, uh, um, I think like uh, Sig, the language uh, it, it's called Sig, right? I think so. Uh, had had a very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, or well, ZIG for our US yeah. audience. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think they've had uh, Andrew Kelly, I believe, is the is the name of the creator of that one. And I think they've had a very interesting approach where Andrew Kelly has been doing this in spare time, and the language has evolved in a very consistent way. And now, recently, he formed the SIG Foundation. They have board members, and they like gradually. My impression is at least that it's gradually becoming a more democratized uh, process. Okay, but I think yeah, like if you, if you were, to, yeah. So uh, I'll be exploring that uh, in the future, but at least until we reach one hour, it's probably going to be me uh, with, uh, but with an open mind for external contributions. Okay. Tell me a bit about that road to Wanda. Oh, you've talked about some of the features, but where are you trying to get to? Where will Gren be five years from now? So like, uh, there's the parametric modules thing, and then I'm going to take a long, hard look at the um, at the uh, core packages, and like so. So there is, it's a funny thing. Like if you look through the Elm core package, which Gren has inherited, you will find this uh, module that is called, I think it's just called process. And if you read the documentation, it kind of hints that Elm is aiming for this Erlang-style concurrency thing, right? but that it isn't finished. So it's like, watch this space, more will come, right? And then <laughs> nothing happened to it. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so one of the things to look at after the uh, parametric modules thing is just go through the packages, find the clues hidden there, and then try to like complete, complete the language in a way. Uh, um, yeah. And then another thing to explore, and that is something I think which will just be a continuous evolution thing, is to add uh, missing APIs. Um, there is this, there is this um, mailing list um, entry, an email, <laughs> I guess, uh, that I, I think you can find it if you Google for it. But at, at once, like long ago, maybe in 2016, I think, um, Elm decided, or Evan decided that, you know, Elm is going to be, you won't be able to just 
use interop wherever you want right the thing mm. you mentioned earlier like the, there was a point in time where that was decided and then people would ask well how do you support things like websockets and how do you support you know other browser apis as they appear yeah and the answer at that time was well there like if you think about it there really aren't that many web apis so creating like this immutable version of that api should be entirely possible and expose that to the to the ecosystem right. and i like that is i think that's part of the reason why Alma stalled a bit because that is a lot of work uh yeah. and uh you know finding people you trust to delegate that work to isn't necessarily easy but uh but i also think that's necessary if you want all the capabilities of the web platform or the node platform uh but at the same time remain uh, or retain these uh immutable managed side effects guarantees yeah uh and where i'm going with this is that you know a, a, another thing to kind of like continuously work with on the road to 1.0 is to find people who are willing to implement those apis and and kind of like help them through the process and yeah flesh out together that catalog. And create a community yeah yeah. So that's another important thing to do moving <clears> forward, <throat> to just add APIs. Um, and then it's going to be tricky to know exactly when to stop, for instance. But for uh, but for Node, um, Node has a built-in standard library that gives you a lot of the building blocks you need to further build uh, anything on top of it, really. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that I want to have before 1.0 is to support as many of those built-in APIs that Node has. Yeah. If someone wanted to contribute to that effort, what are they actually doing? Are they writing Gren? Are they writing JavaScript? Are they writing, I think, the compilers in, written in Haskell? What skills do you need to be that person? Uh, good question. I, I think I just, you know, to, to track back a little bit, you know, the, I, I think, honestly, I would be very happy if people just wrote Gren and told me about the things they liked and didn't like. That would, that would <laughs> first of all, be hugely helpful. And, and another thing that's hugely helpful is, like I mentioned that I uh, publish like language proposals to the Gren Sulip and getting detailed feedback on that would be nice. So if you want to if you want to help the project along, you don't actually need to develop things for it. Just like giving your thoughts is uh is a very valid way of contributing. Um like I said, I I there is someone right now working on an HTTP server API and mm. uh I know he would love to get feedback on the current design. Okay. Um so that's one way of contributing. Just, you know, provide your expertise and uh, give feedback on the things that are in the works right now. Uh, and if you want to contribute uh, with code, then it's really up to you. I, I, yeah, I would love help with the core library, uh, which mean you would be writing mostly Grim. Um, but if you wanted to add support for web API, there would be some JavaScript involved. Nothing too, nothing too difficult, uh, but there is a, um, the interop API you mentioned earlier, it's still not very well documented and it will crash if you look at it in a strange way. <laughs> so <laughs> like there, there is some, there is some uh, arcane lore you need to know in order to contribute JavaScript right. to your project. Yeah. Uh, but entirely possible. And if you want to help out in the compiler, there are many things to do there. Uh, and yeah, that would require Haskell knowledge. 
Okay. So uh, at this at this stage of development, you can uh, help in pretty much any way uh, or form you like. <laughs> okay. Then it's we should up, probably uh, end on how people. you just rather become a con rather than becoming a contributor, we should end on how you become a user. So I know you start with npm install gren hyphen lang. Yeah. What should I do after that? <laughs> <laughs> so I th I think it's I don't I think it's. Um, Yes. Oh, well, I guess if uh, there is an attempt at documenting the language uh, at our website, so there's a, there's a link to a, a book. It's mostly unfinished. And if people would love to help out on that, I'd, I'd welcome it. <laughs> uh, but you get some documentation of the language there. Um, and at this moment in time, the language is... Uh, still resembling Elm, even though it's not 100% compatible. So if you find an Elm resource, you can learn um, learn a lot there as well. And then we have a packages website that contains documentation for the core package and most of the official packages. And if you develop a package, you can also register it at the site uh, and get documentation uploaded there and... and uh, yeah, get the word out, essentially. Cool. Well, that sounds like another fun thing to add to my to-do list of things to play with. <laughs> I, might, I might try porting some of my old untouched Elm code and see how that works out. Well, I, I would love to have remote data on uh, GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> my one claim to fame in the functional programming Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> cool. That gives, me a, that gives me a project for the next few weeks. Robin, thank <laughs> you very much for joining us. Oh, no worries. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Robin. So, an accessible, safe, functional language that's targeting all the places it needs to take you. I think there are a few people vying to be the leaders in that space. But I also think whoever wins, you and I win, right? We're the richer for it. Or maybe it's not a competition at all. Maybe it's just this rich pool of ideas that are going to take us swimming to a better software future. Regardless, we'll be back next week with more wonderful ideas floating in that pool. So now might be the right time to hit subscribe or like or rate or share and let the algorithms know that you want to know when we're back. In the meantime, if you want to try writing some Gren, there's a link to grenlang.org in the show notes. There's also a link to some example Gren projects, which is a great way to see what it would be like to write Gren in practice. And I'll also put a link to elmlang.org in the show notes too, in case you want to kick the tires on Elm. And that should be more than enough food for thought until next week, so I'll sign off. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Robin Hegland-Hansen. Thanks for listening.